landslide, you can hear me. It, it, it's great to be here today. But sometimes you say, well, what am I here for? And there's a verse in the Bible, a couple of them, that tells us one of the reasons that we are here. Where it says in Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another. So you're here to stir things up. To love and good works. Stir that up. That's what we're here for. Not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. So you're here to be an encourager, not a critic. Encouraging one another, and all the more the, as you see the day approaching. Always remember, Jesus is coming. Don't forget that. Okay? So... We're going to ask the ushers to come, and uh, we're going to receive our offering. And uh, we believe that the offering is as much worship as anything else we do. And so we worship God by giving to Him our tithes and our offerings. And we're going to do that at this time. And before I go to pray, a couple things I want to bring to your attention First of all, Jordan Bellows is still in the hospital. She did a telephone pole and rolled her car last night, and, and um, it, it wasn't a very nice situation. She destroyed the car. The pole fell on the top of the car, and the only reason she didn't get hurt real bad is because it fell on the back half, not the front half. It crushed it totally. So, so be in prayer for Jordan. She's in early hospital, and then be in prayer for Josh Beal, uh, who had um, damage done to his arm. I'm not going to go into the whole story, but, but he had his arm injured while he was working, ended up with surgery, ended up with a tendon being replaced uh, by a donor, and had surgery, and folks, he's just going through it, and anytime children are going through it, their parents are going through it, too. So let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to come here together to worship and to draw nigh to you. And Lord, we pray that our focus will be on you this morning. And yet, Lord, you've told us that we must love our brothers also, and we do. And Father, we pray and we want to encourage one another and we want to stir up one another in a way that would please you. Father, we thank you for giving us so much. We, we have so much that you provide for us. And, and uh, Lord, thank you for your plan for giving and for returning it to you and for worshiping you with our tithes and our offerings. Also, Father, at this time, we want to pray for Josh Beal for soon recovery from his surgery. Pray for, uh, for his mother, for his dad. And uh, then, Heavenly Father, we want to pray for Jordan Bellows. Uh, I, I pray, Lord, I know that she had a rough night last night, Lord, but you already know that. And I pray, Lord, that, uh, that she would, uh, the body would be healed. And, uh, Father, that she would soon 
this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. While we're receiving the offering, uh, a couple things I want to share with you. One is, now we're going to talk about another Beal. Not Josh Beal, but Matt Beal, Josh's older brother. He graduated this year, and he's going to be having a graduation party this Saturday here at the church. Now, there was the reason I'm bringing it up is because there was some confusion to whether or not he was, they were going to have it. It was put in somewhere, and it was taken out, and so on. And the latest word I got from Tammy is, you are invited to Josh's, uh, I mean, Matt's open house this Saturday on July 4th and uh, 1 to 4 p.m., okay? And, uh, and Tammy has gone through a lot of work to put that together. So, so why don't you be here? And then uh, I want to remind you that uh, on July 12th, we're going to keep saying this, on July 12th, our new youth intern is going to be here with his new bride, Wes and Lindsay Crawford. And we're looking forward to that. We want to give them a great welcome. But also, on July 12th, the very same Sunday, the same weekend, um, uh, Daniel Patch, who preached here before, is coming back as an invited person to get acquainted with our church and for us to get acquainted with him. So he'll be here during the adult Sunday school hour. We'll all meet together. He's going to share about himself a little bit and his wife and his family. And, and then we're going to have some time for questions if you have any. So July 12th, we're going to do that. And, and then uh, on July 12th, he'll be preaching. And uh, we're going to spend some time that weekend helping him get acquainted with the community and so on. So, so what we're doing is talking to uh, Daniel Patch. Looking forward to him being here. Everybody liked him when he was here before. When he was here before, he was not at that time a candidate. He was a guest speaker. This time, he is not a candidate. He has uh, invited the speaker to become a potential candidate. There is a process, by the way, spelled out in our Constitution that we take, the Popa Committee takes, to get a pastor, and we are following that. Lee Mundy is, is heading that up, but we're following that, and there, that is not subject to change. It's subject to us doing what we already said we were going to do. Uh, I think that's all I need to say as far as announcements. And uh, so, Brother Jay, let's stand together. We're going to introduce a a new song today. We introduce new songs not because we want to frustrate you. <laughs> because you don't know the, the melody yet or the song, but we introduce new songs because there's lots of great songs being written today that have messages that point us to the greatness of God and, and God and how he meets our, us in our deepest needs. And uh, this song was uh, brought to my attention by uh, one of our college and career group students. And uh, she... she brought the song to me, Christ is Enough, and I, I'm listening to it. I'm like, wow. There are not a lot of songs that are being written like this today. 
the song really takes the idea of what Paul says in Philippians, that for to me, to live is Christ. For Paul, his whole life was wrapped around Jesus Christ. Everything. Jesus was all of his devotion. Jesus was uh, the one whose grace was always sufficient for whatever needs were brought his way. Paul did not live for the things of this world. He lived for Christ. So the song really takes on that idea, and uh, the bridge uh, takes us back to the old hymn, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. And uh, different melody there, but same words. And uh, so uh, we invite you to to listen along, and if you do know the song, to, to join us. Father, we praise you for your greatness, Jesus Christ. We praise you for your sacrifice, Holy Spirit. We thank you for sealing us and sanctifying us, our great triune God. We're humbled in your presence today that you would draw near to us, but we praise you that you are near to us, you the great God of the universe. And and we pray that as you are near with us right now by your Holy Spirit, that your spirit would be at work, that your word would uh, be, by his power, effective in our lives today. We pray that Jesus' name would be uplifted and glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Colossians together. Colossians chapter 1. One, and we're going to be looking at just two verses today. So, should be a really short message, right? All right? Yes. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. All right. There, there are lots of things that churches are built on, uh, even really good things that churches are built on, but there is only one thing that a church can be built on that will last, and that is a secure foundation, and that is the centrality of Jesus Christ. Churches build on so many different things. Churches try to grow based on entertainment, based on humor, based on a show, but the Bible is very clear that what a church grows on, what is gospel growth, what is true growth, is the centrality of Jesus Christ. Nothing else can take the place of Jesus Christ in the church. So today we're going to be looking at this idea of Christ-centered church. And what is a Christ-centered church? What what does it mean for our church to be a Christ-centered church? This is what we should be aiming for. And as we read through these two verses, we're going to see how Paul was a Christ-centered missionary. He was a Christ-centered pastor. And he planted Christ-centered churches. And what we need to strive to be as a church is a Christ-centered church. So let me read these two verses. And uh, then we're going to look at three, three aspects of a Christ-centered church. Colossians 1, 28-29 says this. Him we proclaim, warning everyone... And teaching everyone with all wisdom 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So verse 28, the first thing, the first aspect of a Christ-centered church that Paul says in verse 28 is Christ-centered preaching. He says in verse 28, him we proclaim. The him there is Jesus Christ. The central message of Paul's preaching was Jesus. And not just for him, that wasn't just true for him. Notice the word we, him we proclaim. Paul isn't just using the royal we for himself. He is, he's, he's likely including his fellow ministers like Timothy and Epaphras, who he mentions also in the book of, of uh, Colossians, that you know he mentions in the letter, and probably includes everyone else that he knows who is a minister of the gospel, whose central message is Jesus Christ. That was Paul's central message. But what does it mean for Jesus to be the center of Paul's message? What does it mean for Jesus to be the one who Paul proclaims? Did Paul never talk about anything else besides Jesus? Well, you're right. He talked about a lot of things besides Jesus in his letters and in his preaching, but he never talked about anything apart from Jesus. He never talked about anything apart from Jesus. key example of this is found in Romans 15, 17. Let's bring that up on the screen. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. Here, Paul says to the Christians in Rome, he tells them, welcome each other fully into your lives, despite your various levels of spiritual maturity. You've got your strong brothers and sisters, you've got your weak brothers and sisters with different consciences and personal convictions, but despite those things, welcome each other fully into your life. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't end with the command. He grounds it in the prior grace of God, which is as Christ has welcomed you. He gives the command, and he shows how that command is grounded in Jesus Christ himself and who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. So he tells them, remember how Christ has welcomed you with all of your failings. How can you keep other Christians at arm's length when Jesus has brought you so near to himself. You see how this works. Paul talks about many things besides Christ, but he never talks about anything apart from its relationship to Christ. Read through any of Paul's letters, read through the entire New Testament, and you'll see this over and over again. The New Testament authors never talk about anything for very long before they get back to Jesus. So take, I want to invite you to take a few minutes, not right now. We had one of our students who I, I put this challenge out to them, and, and, and the rest of the message, I think he was taking me up on this challenge, which is fine, all right? But the challenge is this. Skim through the New Testament and see how many chapters you could find that do not mention Jesus. See how many chapters you could find that have no mention of Jesus at all. So... Start with Matthew 1. Once you see Jesus, move on to the next chapter. All right, keep moving on. And all the titles uh, referring to Jesus count too. So, so try that out. And, and you will find the all-pervasiveness of Jesus Christ and the centrality of Christ throughout the whole New Testament. Charles Spurgeon, 
great preacher, great pastor from the 1800s, no matter what subject he preached on, he would never fail to preach on Christ, ever. He said this, he once said this, I take my text and I make a beeline to the cross. That was his goal. I take my text, preach the text, and then make a beeline to the cross. He never could preach a message without Christ in it. And he once said, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, what good do you think your sermon is going to do if Christ isn't in it? He got that instinct from Paul. It wasn't something he was making up. He got it from Paul. He got it from the New Testament. The, The message of the New Testament is essentially Jesus Christ. His perfect life. His substitutionary death in our place for our sins. His bodily resurrection from the dead. His ascension. His His ministry to us right now from the right hand of the Father and His return from heaven. That is the message of the New Testament and how that reality of Jesus affects every single aspect of our life and one day will transform our entire universe. The message of the New Testament is Jesus. Paul goes on and he tells a little bit more about what his preaching looks like, his Christ-centered preaching looks like in practice. It includes both warning and teaching. So he would warn these churches when he preached to them, after they'd come to faith in Christ, he would warn them, don't turn your back on Christ. Because there were so many pressures to these early churches that were trying to pull them away from their faith in Christ, just like it's the same for us today. So you had religious pressures, you had moral pressures, social pressures, philosophical pressures, All of these Satan was using to pull these Christians back from Christ. And Paul knew this was going on. And that's why he's writing these letters to these churches, to protect them from these dangers. Paul knew when to lovingly encourage, but he also knew when to lovingly shake them up and and, and warn them, this path that you are considering right now of turning your back on Christ is destructive. You will destroy yourself. So Paul warns these Christians, don't turn your back on Christ. Keep your focus on Him. And there's the positive side of his preaching, and that was his teaching, which as one commentator puts it, was the authoritative communication of gospel truth. This, this was the rich and deep theology that Paul filled the beginning of every one of his letters with. This rich doctrine that about Christ, and then it also included all of the, the hundreds of applications that he gives for that doctrine that always he ends his letters with, and it's all based on Christ. From beginning to end, Jesus was the center of Paul's message, and the center of his ongoing instructions of Christians. But there is a, a sad tendency in churches today to take what is at the center of the Christian message and to push it out to the edges. And to take what's at the edges and to put it at the center. Preaching of Christ and lifting him up is replaced by message after message on how to be better and how to do better. I have been to churches where the preacher will go on and on about what we are supposed to do and say nothing about Jesus. Nothing about Jesus. Nothing about the cross. The cross is absent. The death of Jesus for sinners is completely missing. It is a Christless sermon. 
what does that do to the name of Christ? And we're ashamed to glorify his name in our preaching. And Jay Adams, a Christian counselor, he says this about Christless preaching. If you preach a sermon that would be acceptable to a member of a Jewish synagogue or a Unitarian congregation, there is something radically wrong with it. Preaching, when truly Christian, is distinctive. And what makes it distinctive is the all-pervading presence of the saving and sanctifying Christ. Jesus must be at the heart of every sermon you preach. So if a Jew or a Muslim can say amen at the end of a Christian sermon, it's not a Christian sermon. And it grieves me to see churches that trust in the power of Calvary sermons and distrust the power of Christ in those sermons. And I don't say this out of any pride, I hope, or any sense of superiority. I say it out of grief because these pastors build their entire ministries, their entire lives, on everything but the glory of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. And when they stand before God, everything they spent their lives on will be thrown into the ash heap. Everything. My burden for pastors, my burden for ministry leaders, is for Jesus to be the center of the message. And for that to be so clear for everyone in that class and everyone in that place of worship that no one will deny that sermon was all about Jesus. That worship service was all about Jesus. A Christ-centered church has Jesus as the central message from the Sunday morning messages all the way down to, to Sunday school, kids' Sunday school. Paul, he devoted his life to preaching Christ, and he goes on next to give the purpose for why he preached Christ. His aim was to see as many people as possible, as many people as possible, become followers of Jesus Christ. And so, the second point: a Christ-centered church aims for Christ-centered maturity. So, we need to get uh, technical here a little bit, but let me read what he says again in verse twenty-eight. His aim, Paul's aim, was to present everyone mature in Christ. So. The word mature there is that's the way the ESV translates it. There are a couple ways that Bible translations typically translate that. One is perfect, the other is mature. So probably whatever translation you use has one of those two. And but because of the way English works and the way that we use the English language, perfect is probably too strong, in my opinion, and mature is probably a bit too weak. So perfect for us usually has the sense of absolute perfection. The Bible is very clear, though, that that doesn't happen for us until heaven. And the, the word mature, we a lot of times use it in a relative sense, like I'm more mature than the next guy over there. So I think the meaning of Paul's word that he's using here is somewhere in the middle of those terms. And I think the translation, fully mature, kind of strikes at the, the meaning of the term. Great definition up here on the on the screen is this, as one author puts it: "It's the complete and undivided way 
in which a person with all one's positive and negative attributes is oriented toward God and toward Christ. Your life is completely and undividedly oriented toward God and toward Christ. It doesn't mean you're perfect. None of us will be, but it does mean that you are at the point in your Christian life where Jesus has all of you, where it could be said of your life that you love Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not perfectly at all times, but that is the characteristic of your life. That is what Paul was aiming for with every single person God brought into his life. Every single one. His aim was to see them become a fully mature follower of Christ. That is the mission for Paul. That's the mission for every Christian. It's more than simply getting people saved. It's more than simply reaching people with the gospel. It is teaching those who have been reached to live completely devoted to Christ. And if we if we would each see everyone around us, like Paul saw everyone around him, it would change our church. It would change our community. When, when we look at our next-door neighbor, our aim is to see her become a fully mature follower of Christ. The guy you work with on the construction job, your roommate, your dad, your sister, your aim is to see them become a fully mature follower of Jesus Christ. Your desire is to see them trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. Your desire is to see them become a worshiper of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, someone who loves God and treasures the Bible, someone whose whole life is given to seeking Jesus. That should be our desire and aim for every person God brings in. Every single one. And with lots of prayer and lots of wisdom, we should do whatever it takes to see that happen. So, children's ministry leaders, or those involved in children's ministry, student ministry leaders, ABF leaders, small group leaders, Bible study leaders, the mission of your ministry is this. Preach and teach Jesus. And seek to see every person in your ministry become a mature follower of Jesus. That is your mission. Every single ministry in our church has that mission as its goal. So your end goal in your ministry is not to see how nice you can get your room to look, although that's great and good, or how much fun you can get all the kids to have, or how many activities you can put on the calendar. All All those things are good, but those are not our ultimate mission. Our ultimate mission is not programs. Our ultimate mission is people. That is what we are to invest our lives in. It's not about running more activities. It's about making more disciples. That's what the church is about. That's what glorifies Christ. So, so ministry leaders, when you look in, the, in all the faces of those in your ministry, your desire for each one of them Each one of them needs to be, I want him, I want her to become a fully mature follower of Jesus. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to see that happen. And it's more than just teaching them. It's more than just teaching them about Jesus. It it, it means loving them too. Trying to make disciples of Jesus without displaying the love of Jesus is worthless. If I could paraphrase what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 
If I make many disciples of Jesus, but I do not have love, I am nothing. We have to love like Christ has loved. All right, it's not just about teaching and preaching. We have to love those that we're ministering to. And God wants you to look into the face of that child or that student or that adult who doesn't know Jesus. And your desire is to want them more than anything else that you want for them is for them to worship Jesus and to follow him with their life. Church members, there, there is a challenge here for all of us. Your Christian friends at church, all your friends at church, do you have the aim for them to be fully mature in Christ? Our goal is to help each other become more and more obedient to Christ, more and more filled with love for Christ. And this is going to this is going to take us deeper in our relationships than we're usually willing to go. We're usually fine with surface-level relationships, but if our goal is to see people become fully mature in Christ, it's going to take us deeper in our relationships with each other. But we're usually scared about letting people that close, right? Especially us guys, right? We don't, we don't, we don't want people to get that close into our lives and that invested into our lives. There's the fear sometimes that if, if other people knew my struggles, if other people knew my sins then they would just run away scared, all right? There's always that fear that if people know who we really are, they're going to run away scared. But the gospel frees us from that. We are all sinners. We are all weak. We all deal with the same kinds of temptations, every single one of us, right? For that guy in your small group, he struggles with the same kind of temptations that you do. That girl in your small group, she struggles with the same kind of temptations that you do. We are all in need of the Savior together, and that frees us to invest deeply in each other's lives, to see each other become fully mature followers of Jesus. Paul devoted his entire ministry to preaching Jesus and to seeing people mature in Christ. Add to that all of his beings, all of his imprisonments, contending against all these crazy false teachers, and all the problems that he had with the churches that he planted, trying to get them out of the messes that they put themselves in, and you have one exhausting job. All right, Paul, probably more than anybody else, had an extremely exhausting ministry, but Paul was up to the task, wasn't he? He never quit. He stuck with it. Even when it was exhausting, he gave it everything that he had, but he never let it go to his head. Ever, never did he let it go to his head. Which brings us, last of all, to the third characteristic of a Christ-centered church, and that is Christ-centered effort. You see Paul's Christ-centered effort in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. The word Paul uses there, struggling, that, that Greek word behind that means to contend or to fight. It is sometimes used for a- athletic competitions where you're contending and you're fighting against the competition. So it, it highlights this sustained effort for a goal. And the goal for Paul was presenting everyone mature in Christ. And he gave his everything for that. He wasn't easygoing about his ministry of making disciples and maturing disciples. Making and maturing disciples was what woke him up in the morning. It was what sustained his mission 
day by day, month by month, year by year. That was what he gave his life for. But notice what Paul talks about. All that fighting, all that contending, all that work. He says all the struggling was with all Christ's energy. All Christ's energy. Not his energy, Christ's energy that he, Christ, powerfully works within me. Paul says, all the energy, every bit of it, that I put into my ministry doesn't come from me. It comes from Christ and from his empowering grace. Paul, along with the rest of the Bible, always holds together these two truths about the Christian life. First, the necessity of human exertion. You have to fight. You have to try hard. And it holds together this truth, the empowering grace of God. Never does the Bible separate the two. It always holds them both together. You see this in 1 Corinthians 15.10. This is Paul again speaking. He says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God that is with me. Paul doesn't deny his hard work, right? He says, I worked harder than any of them. But he doesn't deny that all the glory goes to God for his grace. Philippians 2, 12 to 13 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We need to, all of us who are believers, work out our salvation. We have to put in the necessary effort to grow and to make pro- and to make progress. But all of that desire and, and that working out of our salvation is motivated by the theological reality that God is the one who gives us both the very will, the desire comes from God, and the power to accomplish it comes from God. That's what motivates us to extend ourselves and to give our all for the sake of Christ. Paul never stopped working hard for Christ, and he never stopped giving glory to Christ. We need to have that same mindset in our lives and in our ministry. The greatest Christians who have ever lived, have all, they've often been those with the greatest weaknesses. God often brings pain, affliction, depression, and loss into the lives of his people to strip away their self-reliance and to keep them daily aware of their weakness and need for God. We go back to Charles Spurgeon, who I mentioned earlier. He has been called the Prince of Preachers, probably one of the greatest preachers in, in church history. And if you've, ever read, if you've never read a Charles Spurgeon sermon, you need to read one. Some of his language is going to be a bit tough getting through sometimes, but it is well worth the effort. Just any one that you could find is, is worth reading. God used Spurgeon's Christ-centered preaching in an, in an incredible way to bring many to Christ and to mature thousands of believers in this church. But Spurgeon was afflicted through much of his ministry with trial after trial after trial. And one of his trials was the physical suffering that he endured with gout. And gout is, as one article puts it, a kind of arthritis that can cause an attack of sudden burning pain, stiffness, and swelling in a joint. 
So I'm not too familiar with gout. Maybe some of you are. But Spurgeon wrote about his experience with gout. And in 1871, he wrote this. It is a great mercy to be able to change sides when lying in bed. Did you ever lie a week on one side? No. No. Uh, Did you ever try to turn and find yourself quite helpless? Did others lift you and by their kindness reveal to you the miserable fact that they must lift you back again at once to the old position, for as bad as it was, it was preferable to the other one? also says, it is a great mercy to get one hour's sleep a night. One hour of sleep was a mercy from God for Spurgeon during these times. He also said, what a mercy have I felt to have only one knee torturing me at a time. Just one. All right, just one torturing me is better than two torturing me. He says, what a blessing to be able to put the foot on the ground again, if only for a minute. Spurgeon dealt with, along with all the mental anguish and depression and other physical ailments that he had to deal with in his ministry. And it's been said that those that God desires to use greatly, he first has to wound greatly. God wants to use a man in a great way. He often must wound him greatly. First, that was true for Spurgeon, who had to deal with his gout and his other suffering. It was true for Paul and his thorn in the flesh. What's that weakness for you? What is that weakness that God has brought into your life to use for his glory and to use to make you completely self-reliant on him? Sometimes every day you you recognize, I am not going to get through this without God. God intends to use your weakness as a reminder that you can, but he can't. Spurgeon was a great model of this. Paul had a constant sense of his own weakness, but also of God's never-ending power to do everything he called him to do. Uh, There are occasional weeks in my life, uh, and sometimes months, where I I say to myself, there is no way in the world that I'm going to get everything done that has to be done. Week. Anybody else ever there? Anybody there right now? All right, this is June, right? All right, there is no way in the world all of this is going to get done. And, I mean, sometimes it's just freakishly abnormal. Everything that piles up at the same time. And I used to hate when it, that came in. Sometimes I still do. All right, but I'm learning. I'm learning that those weeks, and those months, are setups. God wants to show me His power. God is doing that, His providence, bringing all that together to show me something new about what He can do, to bring me to the end of myself so that I'm trusting completely in Him. That doesn't mean that when those times come and when those times come for you, that you don't have to work your tail off to get everything done, right? It is exhausting to get everything done. It's draining, but it does mean that you can relax because God brought it, and He'll bring you through it. And at the end of at the end of all all those times, what God deserves when He brings you through it is simply a heartfelt thank you for it. 
Spirit, all restraint be removed. That is exactly what Paul is talking about here. All restraint came from God. As a church and as individuals, it's not enough for us to do the Lord's work. We have to do, as Francis Schaeffer said, we have to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And the Lord's way is this, with humble and strong reliance on God for strength, for fruitfulness, for gospel growth. Christ does not want us to be a Bible-preaching church if we aren't begging the Spirit to do mighty things through the Word of God. Christ does not want us to be a church filled with activities and programs that are strong on fellowship with each other, but weak on the life-giving fellowship that comes from God. He doesn't want us to be a church with theologically robust songs, but are not sung out of desperation and need for the God that we're singing about. We have no option as a church and as individuals but to work hard for Christ. And if you're not working hard for God's church, if you're not working hard for God's kingdom, you know what to do. You know what needs to be done. But if you are working hard, never stop praying, never stop thanking God, and never stop making it all about Jesus Christ. There are lots of good things our church can be known for and should be known for. But the one thing that should rise above all of them is the centrality of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus is at the center, it holds everything together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask that you would so work in our hearts that Jesus would be more beautiful to us, more believable to us than anything else in this world that vies for our affections. That, as the song that we sang, that Christ would be enough. Christ would be our all in all. Father, it is so easy to get sidetracked in life and in church for us to, to make other things the center besides Jesus. And for all the times that I've done that, I pray that you would show me your mercy and forgiveness. And for all the times that we've done that, God, forgive us. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Help us to work hard for his sake and for his kingdom. And to daily recognize our need and absolute desperation for the grace that only Christ can give to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I don't have this planned in the schedule, but uh, can we... Pull up Christ is enough again. I would like to end the service as we sing that again. So hopefully you're familiar with the song enough, well, well enough. So let's have our other musician come up and uh, let's stand together and and let this be our hearts cry as individuals and as a church for Christ to be everything for us. Let's go out this week and all of us be seeking to be more and more fully devoted to Christ in our own lives and to seek to see others become disciples and fully mature followers of Christ. So let's go out in the strength this week. We'll see you soon.